we find ourselves in that section known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Matthew because Matthew has uh, a bigger section on this passage. So what I thought we would do today is do uh, another responsive reading. I'm going to read the section that I'll be commenting on in Matthew. And then immediately what follows is the Lord's Prayer. And I thought we could recite that together uh, as we remind ourselves of those words. So I'll read the first part. Listen for the things that Jesus is teaching us to unlearn. And then he's going to teach us how to pray. I'll read the first part. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen of others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Sometimes things are so hidden they can hide in plain sight. I mean, so hidden they can hide in plain sight. Let me tell you a story about a family reunion. Uh, there was a, a family that got together, 50 or 60 people, and they got together at Grandpa's house. A five-year-old Johnny was playing hide-and-seek with his cousins, and he wanted Grandpa to play. They're all trying to get Grandpa to play. And finally, Grandpa says, sure, I'll play. And so Johnny closes his eyes right there in the kitchen, and he counts to ten, and All the children go and hide, and Grandpa's hiding, and everybody's hiding. When Johnny gets done, he opens his eyes, and he starts to look all around. And sure enough, he finds his cousin Bobby in the closet over here. He finds Lucy under the table. He runs outside, and and there hiding behind a tree is Joseph. And he finds all the cousins, but Grandpa is nowhere to be hide. Grandpa is really good at hide-and-seek. Maybe Grandpa's hiding in the attic. There's no way Johnny can get up to the attic to find Grandpa. Or maybe Grandpa went in the car, you know, and went to the store, and therefore he can't find him. And there's Johnny. He's looking and looking. He just can't find Grandpa. And finally, Johnny walks into the kitchen where the game began, and what does he do? He all right, Grandpa, I give up. Come out. And there's Grandpa sipping coffee at the table. Johnny, I've been sitting here the whole time, you know. The point to appreciate is that's the one place that Johnny would never look. And Grandpa knew that. Sometimes things are so hidden, they hide in plain sight. And Grandpa was a good player because he hid in plain sight. In Christian theology, the concept of of sin, sin is so dark and so devious and so deceptive in Christian theology that it has no problem hiding in plain sight. And in the passage before us, sin is hiding on street corners. See that? Here's a place where you'd never look. We're told that sin here and evil is hiding in the synagogue. When they pray, they're standing in the synagogue and on the street corner. How about this? Evil, according to Jesus' words here, before he begins talking about prayer, it's in acts of giving. I mean, how could you hide evil in an act of giving? And yet Jesus tells us we can do that. It's even hiding in a place called prayer. Prayer 
is the least likely place that you would look for darkness. It's the least likely place that we might think we would find evil. Historically, we're kind of told to watch out for evil in the ditches and the gutters on the other side of the track. Look for it in places where there's open, broken lives and things like that. But evil here is hiding in a very crafty, devious kind of place. Prayer. It's hiding in plain sight. It's hiding in a place where we would least likely look for it. And that's why Jesus tells us, as we talk about prayer, we have to watch out for some things in our prayer lives. That on the surface, it may look really good, and as everything's okay, but just dig a little bit, and maybe there's some motivations that are lurking underneath that prayer life. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones from the Westminster Chapel put it this way. He's got a really big volume here on the, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I think it's 340 pages on the Sermon on the Mount. He would do these sermons on one word, and it, he'd go 50 minutes on one word. He'd do that week after week, you know. And so I remember years ago reading through that book, and I'd bring the highlighter out, and this is one of the passages I marked on prayer in this section. He says, we tend to think of sin, that is we Christian, in the rags and the gutters of life. We look at the drunkard, the poor fellow, we say, and there is sin. But that's not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, usually devout and devoted man. Look at him there on his knees in the very presence of God. Even there, self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly, pleasurably about himself, and really be worshiping himself rather than God. What is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones saying? He's saying, you need to make sure you look for evil in the places you'd never look for it. Acts of giving. Acts of prayer. It's not just in the gutters. It's not just in the broken. It's not just on a dark web. It's in a very synagogue. It's in a very church. It's in a very private spaces when we pray. Jesus here is telling us that we need to unlearn some things. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, John's taught his disciples how to pray, John the Baptist, would you teach us to pray? And before Jesus tells them how to pray, he says, yeah, I will. But first, when you pray, don't stand on the streets. Don't be like the hypocrites. And so we want to talk today about unlearning some things about prayer that maybe we collect along the way. Five types of prayers that we need to be very careful we're not falling off the uh, Uh, falling into as Christians. I'm going to give you five. Two are from the passage I read, and then as time allows, I'll hit three from other passages that we're told to be cautious of, okay? The first prayer is this. Prayers that are meant for people and not for God. (laughs) Prayers that are meant for people and not for God. Matthew 5, 6. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen of others, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, let's break down what this passage says, okay? When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. You have to identify where the real problem is here. First of all, no problem with this. They love to pray. That's good. Nothing wrong with loving to pray. In fact, that's a mark of being a Christian. Prayer is really hard work, by the way. Uh, if prayer comes easy and natural to you, you're an outlier. You're not, most Christians aren't like that. Most Christians, prayer is very hard. It's a difficult discipline. 
the language that's used for prayer by Paul in the book of Colossians is agonizomai. That's an old Greek word that in English we translate agony. If there's times when you pray and you're like, this just feels like agony, you know, that's agonizomai. It's exactly how Paul describes it. Prayer at times can be very hard work. Nevertheless, Christians desire to pray. We desire to talk to God. No problem with loving to pray. No problem with the posture either. Jesus says that the hypocrites love to stand when they pray. Nothing wrong with standing, right? In 1 Samuel, remember when Hannah prayed? She prayed standing. Nothing wrong with kneeling to pray. Daniel kneeled when he prayed. Sometimes people sit when they pray. That's what David did. He entered into the presence of the Lord and he sat down and prayed. Some people lie down when they pray. Read the book of Numbers. Moses lies down. Sometimes they're on their faces to the ground like the book of Revelation. Nothing wrong with the posture of prayer here. No problem with the location either. Nothing wrong with praying on the street corner. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with praying in the synagogue. Nothing wrong with praying out loud before people. The problem is not that somebody's praying in front of other people. That happens all the time. Jesus prayed in front of the disciples. In Acts 27, Paul prayed in front of like, what, 270-something people. None of which were Christians, by the way, that we know of. Nothing wrong with that at all. What's the real problem here? The problem is right here in verse 5. Can we flip that slide? Can we flip to the next one? Yeah, problem is when you pray. See that little phrase? That they may be seen of others. Ah, that's the problem. It's not that they love to pray. It's not the posture. It's not that they're praying out loud. It's the reason we're doing it. Because they love to be seen of others. They are praying not to God, but they're really praying to other people. That phrase that may be seen of others, that's a, that's a, a Greek word that means to shed light upon. You ever go into a museum and there in a corner there's a little exhibit in a dark room and there's a light over that exhibit and, and it's like the centerpiece of the room. You know, all your attention is drawn to that one thing. That's the idea here. They are praying in a way where all the attention comes to them. In other words, the words that are being used and in the back of the mind they're thinking, I bet people think that was a good phrase. <laughs> you know? They're praying and they're thinking to themselves, I bet this girl over here thinks I'm really godly for praying that way. I'm going to use big lofty words so everybody's impressed by my prayer. They're praying to people, they're not praying to God. By the way, in verse 1, the Greek concept there is literally the word theater. Where we get the English word theater, they're making a spectacle of their righteousness. Making a spectacle of their giving and making a spectacle of their prayer life. That's the problem here. And then they go out on the street and they pray. They do it in the synagogue. They do it on the street. On the street here means the street corner of the busy road. It's not a back alley, but a busy road. You're talking like downtown type praying here. And they're doing all this to be seen of people, not to glorify the Lord. The real problem here is the motivations. These are prayers that we need to be careful of. Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray that you might impress other people. Pray to God. Pray to God. Um, don't put a spectacle on. I once heard a story about a, a couple of ushers at a great concert hall. And these ushers, man, they, you know, they like music. They like their jobs. They have great concerts in this hall. In this one concert, it was a nice show, kind of a normal show, but a good show. And there's that standing ovation at the end. And maybe you'll even get something like an encore. 
And the ushers, these two ushers, they're really clapping it up in the middle of the aisle, you know, with the audience. And every time the audience went to sit down, they would, you know, get them back up. You know, let's really... And you and everybody in the audience is thinking, these ushers must really like this band, you know? Like, there's something else. And soon enough, the, you know, the audience is just kind of worn out, and they sit down, and one usher... And, the, and one of these ushers just stops clapping. He gets a little worn out, and the other usher looks at him and says... You fool, don't stop clapping. If we get an encore, we're going to be on overtime pay, you know? See, you think they love the band, but they really want overtime. Nothing wrong with that, I'm sure. The point to appreciate is sometimes we do things with a motivation out here, but inside the motive is is very different. And Jesus says when you pray, sometimes it looks like you're praying to God. And we look very pious in our prayers and righteous. But underneath all that, we're really praying to impress people. And that's a devious kind of prayer. It's a very evil kind of prayer. That is, that is evil hiding in plain sight. Something to be cautious of. Years ago, I prayed uh, with a missionary. I think you'd call him a missionary um, at, a, at a prayer meeting. And um, he, 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 I, I enjoyed how he prayed. He prayed the scriptures. And he kind of taught me how to pray the scriptures. He's a lot older than me. Um, and, and I said, uh, tell me how you learned to pray. Uh, you know, like, like, help me work on my prayers a little bit. And I remember he told me a story. He said, let me tell you what happened to me years ago. He said, when I, was a, when I was a young man, I was praying with a group of Christians that I really admired. These big names in Christianity back then, I guess. He said, and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. He said, and during the whole prayer time, I kept thinking to myself, did I say that right? You know, did my words come across okay? Are they thinking funny? They think that I said it wrong? You know, something like that. He said, I got so convicted that I was praying for the wrong reasons that when everybody opened their eyes and looked at each other, I just confessed that sin. He said, I I looked at that group of men and I said, guys, I just prayed to you for like five minutes. Can I pray to God now? (laughs) And I remember him telling me that. And sometimes we feel that way. We are so intent on coming off the right way, on impressing other people, rather than bringing our prayers before the Lord. So Jesus here gives us a solution. When you pray, he says, enter into the closet. That's in verse 6. That's the inner room. The closet, by the way, is probably the center of the house. Uh, you had These were square houses, and in the middle you often had, we would call it a closet. It's really more of an old room. And in the middle of that room, they would keep food in there. Uh, that's where you would keep your goods. That was the coolest place in the house. And that's probably the only place in the world you would get privacy. You have to understand, in the ancient world, nobody gets privacy. You know, people walk in and out of people's houses all the time. And this is the one place you'd get privacy. And Jesus says, enter into there and pray to God. Now again, he's not telling us that's the only way we can pray. There's nothing wrong with praying publicly. We do that every week here. The early church did that. But Jesus is just trying to make the point, don't pray to impress people, pray to God. We want to avoid the kind of prayers that are intended to please people and not the Lord. Okay, number two, there are prayers that are full of thoughtlessness and just thoughtless words and phrases. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. 
Now, in the old King James, that's where I learned this verse, it's called vain repetition. Don't pray with vain repetition or don't pray with empty words. Now, what exactly does that mean? Vain words here is, uh, in English, we would call this onomatopoeia. Do you know what this is? It's like if I said this, if I said, um, I was downtown and all I heard was honk, 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 that's onomatopoeia, you know? Or, or I heard a goose fly by and he said, what did, what did he say? That was, yeah, honk, honk, there you go. <laughs> I should have used the cow and done moo. You get my point. That's onomatopoeia. See, what Jesus says here is he's not using a word. In the original language, Jesus' disciples would have heard, you know how the Gentiles pray? They're like, blah, blah, blah. That's what Jesus is communicating here. They just go on and on. It's onomatopoeia, blah, blah, blah. And so the idea here is sometimes we just use thoughtless words and thoughtless phrases and we go on and on and on. Sometimes we do that because we were just taught to do that. I mean, really, it's kind of innocent in some ways. It's not like there's some dark, deceptive motive behind that. I find myself repeating words and phrases all the time in prayer. And we should also notice that not all repetition in prayer is a bad thing. If you read the words of Jesus, he repeats himself in prayer. Paul says, three times I asked the Lord to remove the thorn. That's repetition in prayer. If you really want to see repetition in prayer, there's a parable Jesus says where there's a persistent widow and she bothers the judge until the judge answers her request. No doubt she's using the same language and the same concepts over and over until the prayer is answered. There's nothing inherently wrong when we pray using some of the same words and phrases and ideas, but there's a thoughtlessness that Jesus is talking about here. Now, if you really want to get to the root of the problem on why Jesus says this, there's two things. Here's the music in the background of empty words in in vain repetition. It's this. Number one, sometimes in the ancient world, the pagans would pray in a way just to keep their God's attention as if their God will fall asleep. So it's kind of like when you're talking to the driver to kind of keep them awake or you turn the music on, like that driver has no way of paying attention to you or or they're going to fall asleep if you don't keep them awake. That's the idea here. Don't think God just falls asleep. Don't think you have to keep his attention with these many words. The other thing here is this. Sometimes in the ancient world, and even today we can do this, we're trying to manipulate God with our many words. The more words I say, the more I can make God like a genie in a bottle, you know? My phrases, the way I turn a phrase, the way I talk, that's just going to get God to act on my behalf. So the upshot of this is there's a lot of legalism Jesus is talking about. Don't treat God like a genie in a bottle. Don't pray the way the pagans pray, Jesus tells us here. Remember that story with Elijah in the Old Testament where they call down fire from heaven? Uh, He calls down fire. He's in a competition with the false prophets of Baal. You may or may not know this passage. But this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. When the pagans tried to call down fire from heaven, it says they called on the name of Baal from morning to noon saying, O Baal, answer us. And there's this vain repetition they went through in order to try to manipulate their God. Jesus says, don't do that. This is your loving heavenly. He knows what you're going to ask before you even ask. You don't have to keep him awake. You don't necessarily, you don't have to manipulate him by no means. He's a loving father that will answer according to his perfect will. So when we pray, 
We want to make sure we're not trying to manipulate God. We don't feel like we have to keep him awake, like he's going to fall asleep. This passage warns us against legalistic prayers, that our fancy words don't manipulate God. We're in a relationship with God. All right, number three, these are prayers that stem from a heart of resentment. And this is in James. James tells us, he says, you you ask and do not receive because you ask wrong to spend it upon your passions. Now, let me get a running start on this one. This is a really tough one to understand, I think. Um, It's because I only gave you one verse here, but here's what's happening. Well, let me say this first of all. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. On the surface, that makes it sound like you shouldn't ask for anything good in your life. And I would say that can't be the case. It's, it's okay. It's good to ask God for good things. I mean, Hezekiah asked God to extend his life several years, and God answered that prayer. Jabez asked that God would expand his boundaries, literally, and God answered that prayer. Abraham desired to be part of a city whose builder and maker is God. Paul asked for some infirmity, the thorn in the flesh, to be removed. Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. Paul asked to expand his ministry. He asked for the Colossians to pray for him. These are all good things. I think it's good. Pray for your business. Pray for healing. Pray that God expands your boundaries. There's nothing wrong with that at all. What James seems to be talking about here, though, is the kind of prayer that just stems from resentment and anger and selfishness. And here's why we would say that. If we got a running start at this verse, it starts in verse 1 where he says, What quarrels, what conflicts are among you? Are not your passions at war within you? So deep down in their hearts, there's a lot of resentment taking place. And it starts to manifest itself in fighting right there in the church. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, all that fighting and quarreling in the church and in the families, that's because the hearts are out of step with God. Now stop right here. Christians have always believed this. We believe there's a sin beneath the sin. There's problems beneath the problems. When there's anger and agitation in your life, you can't just put band-aids on it, but get down to your heart relationship with God. Think of your heart like a tea bag. You know, Jesus said, out of the heart comes the issues of life. Think of your heart like a tea bag, that when heat and pressure go into your life, then, you know, anger and frustration start to come out. The, 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 the pressure didn't create the agitation. It brought it out. That's what James is saying. And, and this is the context of this verse. Their prayers they're, they're, are, are, are in the context of anger and resentment. They're mad at each other. They're angry at each other. And therefore, they're not praying in a way that brings glory to God. They're praying in a very selfish way. So they can spend it on their passions, James says. So again, prayer here is hiding in a very dark place. Very dark place. Let me give you number four. These are prayers that come from an unrepentant heart. Unrepentant heart. Uh, Psalm 66 verse 18 says... If I regard iniquity in my heart, here's the context of prayer, the Lord will not hear me. Now, does this mean if I have any sin in my life, God will not hear me? Well, it can't mean that. Because First John says, if we say we don't have sin, we're liars, right? All of us, to some degree, we have brokenness, we have flaws, we have things we're working on before God. 
Even Paul. Paul, how many times did Paul say things like, in Romans 7, the things I want to do I'm not doing, and the things that I'm doing I really don't want to do. In other words, Paul is making a confession. There's a lot of brokenness in my life. All of us have brokenness. All of us have sin, and all of us have to deal with those things. So this passage is not saying that if I have sin in my life, God will not hear me. It can't mean that. What does it mean then? Well, this word regard is kind of the key to understanding what this means. This does not mean have. It means if I love, if I cherish, if I value. In other words, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I place value on iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This is a tough one to understand, but I think if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you'll understand it. Here's why. In Lord of the Rings, who's tempted by the ring? Everyone, right? As I understand this, everyone. The ring has a certain lure. The ring has a certain power. And there are times when Frodo himself even succumbs to that. But then you see some other characters that are wholly overtaken by that kind of uh, idolatry of the ring. And it's true that everybody succumbs to the power of the ring to some degree. But they are to the power of the ring in somewhat different ways. Some seem to almost hate the power the ring has over them. And others seem to really love and cherish that power and just want more and more of it. And so the psalmist says, Psalm 66, it's a heart that grows to love things that are outside of God's will and not only a refusal to turn away from those, right? But, but a, not even having a desire to want to turn away from those. And so this is the unrepentant prayer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sometimes we pray, but we're praying from a heart that really doesn't in any way want what God wants for us. We're just really happy with our, our own direction. And we want to be careful about that. Here's the last one I'll give you. And this is from Luke 18. Prayers that are rooted in moral superiority. Here we go, Luke 18. This is the Pharisee and the publican. Uh, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is the prayer. God, I thank you I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, idolatrous, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all things I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so two men go up to the temple to pray. They would go up to the temple at two different times, either 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. Those are the standard times. Some sacrifice is going to be offered. The incense is going to be burned. And that's a normal time to pray. The Pharisee here is a very respected member of the religious community. The tax collector, as you know, is going to be despised. The tax collector is like the Benedict Arnold of the day. He's the traitor. He's the one that's sold out to the Romans. And the Pharisee knows this, so he makes this prayer. And the word here, by the way, is contempt. He had contempt on him. It means to reduce to nothing. He reduced this tax collector to nothing. He thought nothing of him. You ever heard somebody say, you are nothing to me? That's the same idea in this passage. Be very careful with language like that. And so the word as here, you'll notice that the the Pharisee here is making a moral judgment on the tax collector that he isn't even willing to put on himself. He's praying with a high degree of moral superiority. 
and he's praying in a very legalistic way, almost a way that says, God, I'm better than other people. I'm certainly better than that person over there. Obviously, that person over there doesn't have their life together like me. These are prayers that come from a heart of moral superiority. And what does the text say? One of them is going to go to their house justified. Which one is it? It's not the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector are broken before God. They both need the mercy of God. One recognizes it and the other one does not. And therefore, the one that recognizes it is the one that walks to his house justified. I'll give you the passage and we'll close on this one. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's how we should always come to God. Not with our pride and our arrogance and contempt for other people. We want to make sure we're routing that out. And we want to come with humility before the Lord. Not seeing ourselves as morally superior, but as, you know, as the old Christians used to say, the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right? We all come in humility. We all come before God together looking for his grace and his mercy. So we want to avoid prayers that are coming from that feeling of moral superiority. So a lot of things here that we need to make sure we're careful about, the wrong kinds of prayers. And next week, we're going to start talking about the right kind of prayer that starts with our Father who is in heaven. Jesus will instruct us on prayer. So we close our service today. This idea of giving grace to the humble but resisting the proud means we need God to work in our lives. We need God to work through us. And we're going to close by singing, Yet not I, but Christ through me. I'm going to invite our worship team this way. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace and your love.